0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isgard, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week we are talking to Congressman Anthony Gonzalez. He is a representative of Ohio's 16th Congressional District. He was elected in 2018, and he's one of the 10 Republicans who broke with their party to vote in favor of the article of impeachment in the House just a couple weeks ago. And Congressman, you were one of only 10 votes in favor of impeachment. As you were thinking through how to take that vote, were you thinking of it more as a uh, backward-looking vote about specific behavior on the impeachment herself or a forward-looking vote on the future of the Republican Party, the movement, conservatism? How did you start thinking about which way to vote?
1: Yeah, so great question. So, you know, for me, uh, all I can do is vote on what 's in front of me like what's what the text of what i 'm looking at is and and what the vote that day is um, and and the way that I kind of processed it was I looked at three different time periods, uh, one from the time that the electoral college met uh, to January sixth at uh, the speech on January sixth and then the immediate aftermath while the capitol was being stormed uh, and when you look at all of those um you know, I, I think the the period between the electoral college meeting and the certification uh, was was a terrible time. Uh, I think what the president was doing with respect to the Georgia uh, secretary of state, but also state legislatures around the country, uh, was was awful. Uh, I mean, the, the the whole goal of the campaign uh, became to literally overturn uh, an election that the electoral college had had basically already decided, um, and so that. I had a, a whole mountain of problems with that. Uh, I thought the call with the Secretary of State uh, was a major problem. Uh, and then the speech. I thought the speech itself, uh, frankly, it, it had sort of mixed language in it. Uh, there, there were elements where he did say, you know, go peacefully. But on top of that, there was, you know, you have to fight. You have to take back your country. There was a line in there about, you know, when you catch people in a fraud, you play by very different rules. Um, and, and we know, obviously, what happened in the immediate aftermath. Um, but the thing that really put me over the top uh, was the period of time between sort of when the Capitol was being stormed uh, and ultimately the National Guard showing up uh, and asking myself, you know, what was the president doing during that time? Um, and and speaking to people who were in the White House with him that day to understand sort of mindset and, and how people were processing uh, what was unfolding. Um, and. Look, the reality is, uh, you know, the Congress uh, and the vice president were under attack, were under attack by a mob. Uh, And the president didn't step up, in my opinion, uh, in nearly the right way uh, to to calm it down, to stop it. You know, I think I'd I'd probably be a no if, you know, he had seen all this and immediately said, hey, cut this out. Here comes the National Guard. We're done. Um, This isn't what I wanted. Uh, but instead, you know, we had multiple hours uh, go by uh, and the first tweet that went out was actually attacking the vice president uh, while while the Capitol was under siege. Um, and so, you know, it's frankly the last thing on earth I wanted to do because I, I celebrated a lot of policy wins uh, that the president had over the last four years. Uh, and I think his policies, I said this a million times, I think his policies are spot on for Northeast Ohio, uh, which is where I'm privileged to represent. Um, but when you look at the totality of the actions, uh, I, I believed it tipped the scale to impeachable. Uh, and it's the last thing on earth I wanted to do, obviously. Uh, but, uh, but I felt like it had to be done.
0: Steve?
2: You, you had to know as you contemplated your vote in those days before you, you made it, um, that this would cause you some political problems, to be blunt about it how much did that factor into your thinking and uh, what's been the reaction that you've got both from your constituents and your colleagues?
1: Yeah. So look, I think that with, with this job, which I've, I've always said, this is the greatest job I've ever had. The opportunity to represent a community that gave me and my family so much. Uh, we're Cuban immigrants. My father immigrated here in the sixties um, and, and welcomed us and, and allowed us to live this beautiful American life. Uh, The opportunity to represent Ohio 16th district outside of marrying my wife is the greatest honor I've ever had in my life, may be the greatest honor I ever have in my life. Um, And so I, I'm very appreciative of of the opportunity and always will be having said that you have to love your country and you have to adhere to your oath more strongly than you do your job. Uh, And, you know, I don't know what political fate, you know, will, will play out. Uh, I, I I don't, um, but I do know, uh, that as I was sitting in my office contemplating the vote, um, look, I was, I was very anxious, uh, and, and had a lot of people who I trust, uh, who I love, who were saying, Hey, don't do this. You know, this is going to have some major political ramifications. Um, and you know, you're going to have a lot of cleanup to do and they are right. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but at the end of the day, again, I go back to. You have to you have to adhere to your vote. You have to love your vote. You have to love the country. You have to love the Constitution more than you love your job. And and if my fate is, ultimately that, you know I I, I don't get to come back. Uh, I will do that uh, at peace. Um, now there's some sort of personal safety uh, issues that have come up that are are less exciting to deal with. And I'm, frankly, we're we're still trying to navigate that as a family. But um, but in terms of the political consequences you got, they are what they are and, and we'll, we'll manage them as they come up and, you know, we'll, we'll do the best we can. But, um, but there are people who are very angry, obviously. Um, uh, but there's also, I'll say this, there's also a groundswell, uh, of folks who reach out and say things like, Hey, just so you know, you're not alone. Um, there's a lot of people out there who support what you did, but, but we feel like we have to be quiet, uh, because you know, the, um, the, the backlash is so strong out there. Uh, and so it's, it's, um, it's been mixed. And you know, the last thing I'll say on it, I, I think as time plays out, which is the, the great healer of all wounds, um, I, I do think the perception of the vote will change. How it changes and how much it changes, I don't know. Um, but, but I do think over time, and the more opportunities I have to talk to my voters directly, um, the, the better off uh, we'll all be.
0: Given that, do you think that the Republican Party as it stands now is better off dividing into two parties the Patriot Party and the Republican Party or two different options like can this can this union that currently is trying to hold a conservative movement uh which I think you belong to and a populist movement can that union really survive this this feels more like a two-legged stool these days
1: yeah, you know, it's, it's up to us, right? Um, it's up to the people, of the country, and it's up to elected representatives, uh, to, to lead through this. I mean, I, I personally believe that as a country, we have a, a giant void of, uh, of principled leadership. Um, and so, uh, that needs to be filled, uh, some kind of way. I, I hope to be a part of that story. Um, and I hope that the conservative movement, uh, is, is carrying a banner on that story. Um, but, uh, you know, and and I'm confident that we will, provided we do a handful of things. One of which is to simply stop lying to people. It's it's a very simple concept, <laughs> um, but but if if we How are going, you,
0: sir. what an outrageous yeah, no, outrageous suggestion!
1: I, I know it's crazy, um, but but uh, the the truth is, you know, we have what I consider to be in this country in a, an epistemological crisis. Uh, which is sort of a crisis of knowledge, a crisis of fact, uh, and it's it's multifaceted. Uh, we're you know we're sort of in this space where there's a perpetually escalating set of tensions between the press, uh, who is you know primarily left leaning, and President Trump and the Republican Party and the conservative movement, uh, who's right leaning. And and the truth is, everybody does play a role in this. Uh, where you know the, the condescension and the bias that we see out of the left uh, has pours gasoline on top of a fire. The president undermines confidence by attacking the press, but then also over the last two months, just frankly putting a lot of nonsense into the world. Um, and, and people don't know what to believe anymore. And, and so there's this, there's this crisis of fact and knowledge and what fills it, uh, or what has filled it in the last couple months has been garbage. And, and that garbage was latched onto by some, Politicians and and other opportunistic people uh, and spewed into the into the ether and, and people latched onto it and they believed it um, and and that's to me I think one of the biggest problems we have is we've lost this sense of truth and objectivity uh, and so you know if, if we're gonna earn the trust back of the American people uh, on a big scale on a national scale uh, in my opinion it has to start with us as leaders in our communities as leaders in Washington coming together and saying, cut out the nonsense. We're not going to go down this QAnon path. Uh, we're going to stick to objective reality and tell people the truth. Sometimes they're not going to like the truth. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> but, but we have to start there because I don't know how to govern in a world where we believe things that aren't real. I just can't, I don't know how to do my job in that world. Uh, and so I'm not, I'm personally not going to go down that path, but, um, but it, it's, it's going to require genuine leadership and it's got to start in our communities and it's got to start here. And, and we all have a voice. There's 435 of us uh, and we have to be responsible with
2: that voice. Well, let me, I'd like to spend some time on that because it's something of an obsession of mine. Um, you go back to the, the days actually before the election and then looking forward to the election. And, you know, cl- clearly there was a concerted effort to, to, in my view, deceive voters, most of them Republican voters, about what had happened. The, the argument was the election was stolen. And the argument started really, as I say, before the election. It was carried through to after the election. And then, you know, you had um, sort of propagandists for, The president, his lawyers, Lynn Woods, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and others, in effect, trying to convince people the election was stolen. When time after time after time, as Sarah has pointed out um, repeatedly in the courts and elsewhere, when when it came time to provide evidence that to back these claims up, the evidence was lacking. And yet, you know, here we are in the end of January. If you look at public opinion polling now, today. You still have a majority of Republicans, a strong majority of Republicans in some cases, three quarters of Republicans in one recent poll I saw, who believe that the election was stolen. So I guess I'm, well, I've got about 50 questions for you. One, how many of your colleagues in the House, many of whom made these arguments, do you think actually believe the election was stolen? It's hard to say, honestly,
1: I, I don't, you know, I can't get inside people's minds. Um, I, I do think the majority of the people who were making the argument, uh, believe it in some form, um, and, and, uh, and did it in a way that they felt was, was true and honest. Um, some, frankly, I mean, just openly said, "I I got to do the political thing here and, you know, I may agree with you, but, uh, I'm going to do what, you know, what's going to save my hide. Um, and I, I, in a way, I sort of respect that because it's so honest. It's, <laughs> um, like, it's, it's honest and
2: it's dishonesty.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, hey, you were right, but I don't really care.
2: So, <laughs> um, and uh, in, in praise of open cowards. <laughs> yeah. Before
0: we move on from that point, though, I, because let's set aside uh, this vote. There are plenty of times, I'm sure, as a congressman where Uh, you know, there's a vote on on puppies and rainbows, but it's never going to pass the actual legislative process. In this case, the impeachment, he is not going to be convicted in the Senate. So is it in that sense, you know, if it's a suicide vote, we're laughing about it. But like, what is the point? If those people were going to lose their seat, would we rather have them in Congress or we'd rather take a symbolic vote?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's always the question. Right. And I think, um, for me personally, just how I fell down on, it, I mean, you saw how I voted, but, um, how I fell down on it was, look, you know, all I can, all I can ask myself is do I, is this article of impeachment sufficient to me? And, and then I have to go through that process. And yeah, I could make a million political arguments, right? Like we're all smart enough to come up with a political argument or a rationalization for any vote that we want. Uh, these are, you know, we're all intelligent people. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you know, at that point it's, everybody kind of figures out how they want to play it. But I I will tell you one argument people make, not just on this vote, but on, on all votes, um, when you're, you know, in this job is they say, Hey, look, you know, you may be on this, but you know, the country's better off if you're in Congress or, you know, the district's better off if you're in Congress. So, you know, you shouldn't put yourself in these politically precarious positions, um, because you know you're going to put yourself at risk, and I understand that argument, but I think it's always a question about short-term versus long-term benefit to the country. Uh, and and to me, when you know in the short run that's probably true, but in the long arc of history, when we look back on sort of what happened on January sixth and what that was, which to me was an attempt to overthrow a certified election, first by going. Through the courts, then by going to state legislatures, then by trying to intimidate Congress, then by sending a mob to the Capitol. Uh, in the totality of that, for me, for my kids, I want to know that every American, when they grow up, says to themselves, that was wrong, and the United States of America doesn't tolerate it. And so it's always a long term versus short term game. And so, yes, in the short run, maybe you lose your seat maybe you don't get to come back but in the long arc of history i believe it was the right vote and i believe it sends the right message the
2: the, um, among the the biggest questions when you look at the the public opinion polling right now and you you see that you know 70 percent of republicans still believe uh that the election was either fraudulent or stolen or not legitimate um How do you you overcome that? What do do your constituents believe and how do you communicate to them that this is not true?
1: Yeah, so I think this is the central question. I'll I'll say this in my conversations with constituents, when I when I sit down and I go through what actually happened on election night and how this all played out, uh, it it typically gets people to go, okay, that's right. I do remember that Um, because. I think we need to remember, right, like, there were a lot of irresponsible politicians and a lot of things that were being said that shouldn't have been said, and, and right, we've gone down that path, we can keep going down it, but I, I think it's, we've sort of handled that, um, but having said that, the reality is people went to bed thinking one thing, okay, and then they woke up and a whole bunch of other things started happening, and that's just confusing, Okay. Um, and you know, it, it takes somebody who's in my opinion, who's in the business, who was following the elections and knew, okay, so here's what I, I just did this with two constituents. I said, remember when Ohio's results first got posted and president Trump was down and I was down in my election by like one or two points. And, uh, immediately at that point, I knew we were going to win. Uh, and, and why is that? It's because the way that Ohio was going to count their absentee ballots, which were going to be overwhelmingly Democratic, uh, they were going to count, they were going to tabulate them and post them first. Okay, so the first results we were going to see were going to be absentee ballots, and we knew the Democrats were going to vote absentee. Then our voters show up, right? And now the count starts catching up, and you see the president wins Ohio by eight points. I win my election by twenty-eight, and nobody questions it because we we posted our absentees right away. And then the election day vote comes in and you more or less know who wins the election uh, before you go to bed. In Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, they did the reverse and Georgia. And so that's confusing for people. They go to bed, the president's ahead, the guy they voted for is ahead. And then all of a sudden it looks like they're finding ballots and all of it. It's like, what the heck is going on? Like, Why does mm-hmm. you know, the number keep changing? There's a very rational explanation, which is those states didn't count the absentee vote until after the in-person vote was done, uh, for the most part, right? That's generally how it went. Um, and so, when you kind of walk through the logic train, people start to go, "Okay, I get that." Um, and and I I've found that that's that's very effective. The problem is, it takes about five minutes to walk through it, <laughs> and, yeah. and you can't you can't do that with everybody. Um, Given that, and so, yeah, would
0: you? Would you support uh making some federal standards of how elections are counted and reported on election day?
1: Yeah, so normally I would say no, right? Republicans are typically against that. Um, but after this election, yeah, I think I think it is time to open that box and say what can we do to build confidence in the electorate? Because whether you think this election was stolen or not and and, and whether you think this whole thing was a farce, I think we would all agree that we want people to have confidence in the election. And so you know, that should be a priority. Uh, and, and if we can build it by putting some federal standards in place, uh, having some auditing requirements, uh, just sort of good democratic process practices. Um, I would be open to that. Whereas, you know, pre-election I would have said, no, I think each state should be able to do, you know, do this how they want. Um, I think we figured out that there are some, some vulnerabilities when you go down that path.
0: Is there any future for such legislation, any bipartisan support for something like that?
1: I think you could get something on the auditing. I mean, look, after the 2016 election, there was a, a big push uh, from my Democratic colleagues uh, to do some things on election reform and, and security. Um, some of those ideas that that we rejected, I think people would be open to uh, in a piecemeal fashion. Um, but, you know, that that's going to require them to want to wanna work with us. So far, that has not been the case at all. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm hopeful or pessimistic, but that's just the political reality.
0: thousand dollars or ten million they can help you whether it's business or personal taxes even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch
2: speaking of political realities when you when you think about what's happening inside the house republican conference today um, yesterday in the news, you had um, Representative Matt Gates flying out to Cheyenne, Wyoming to lead a rally suggesting that um, Liz Cheney, the third-ranking Republican, should lose her leadership seat. You've had uh, a number of members of the House Freedom Caucus and some others voice support for, for that. Um, Kevin McCarthy in, initially said he didn't think that that was the right Step, and he seems to have softened his position a little bit in in recent days saying she didn't tell me she was going to do this the communications on it was terrible he's not yet saying he's for it but he's really not saying strongly that he's against it uh did, did i mean it sounds like you viewed this as a vote of conscience she has said that she viewed it as a vote of conscience is that something that? Um, ought to get people thrown out of leadership. And if so, what, what's the future for votes of conscience?
1: Yeah. So first off, you know, members shouldn't be campaigning against one another. Uh, and, you know, look, if, if we are going to in fact build a cohesive team uh, based on principle, that's going to go win back the house and, uh, and hopefully the Senate and potentially the white house in four years, um, this has got to stop. Uh, but, you know, for me, it, it comes down to, you know, what was, what was told to us by leadership. Um, and, you know, leadership, a little inside the beltway thing, they typically give you recommendations on votes, especially difficult votes. You know, whatever it is, leadership says no, and here are the reasons why. Um, and then they whip it. You get a call from Steve Scalise or his team, and they, they make sure that the, the votes are where they want. That's how, how it typically works. Uh, in this particular instance, leadership gave no recommendation, uh, and there was no whip. And so we were told to vote our conscience. Okay, so we all voted our conscience. uh, And now we're finding out that there might be a punishment for doing exactly what we were told to do. Mm. So I I just think it's silly. Um, And and frankly, again, we need to cut this stuff out as quickly as we can, figure out who we are as a party, who we want to be, who we want to represent to the American people, or what we want to represent to the American people. Uh, and then we need to move forward. Uh, and, you know, if, if, it, if we get into this sort of interim period where we're going to have our own internal set of fights and battles, you know, I'm ready for that. Uh, but, but my hope is that uh, cooler heads will prevail and, you know, we'll, we'll do the right thing, which I think is to sort of figure out who we want to be uh, and, and then represent accordingly.
0: What role do social media platforms have to play in it? What role do regular media platforms have to play in that? And where does Congress come in to regulate those?
1: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. So, you know, when I think of, again, back to this sort of epistemological crisis and and what's happened, um, you know, we have basically nobody trusts the media anymore. So you have this collapse of traditional information and knowledge that, that sort of goes by the wayside. Uh, and then it gets filled by, again, sort of self-interested, cynical politicians, online bloggers, and then anyone who wears, quote, your jersey. And this is a left and right issue, right? This isn't just a right issue. Anyone who wears your jersey. And that could be in the form of an email chain. That could be a post on Facebook from somebody you've never met before. And that becomes your gospel. And because of the way social media platforms are set up, we're basically engagement engines. It just pushes this stuff the more incendiary the better uh, and and the further it flies the more people who buy it and all of a sudden you know you get a situation where it's 9 p.m the night of the insurrection and all of a sudden the story is it's antifa who did it <laughs> which is just patently false i mean you could just look at the arrest reports i think there's one guy so far that i've seen who's associated with with antifa and in, in the, the riots in the summer which were also wrong okay and we can spend time there um but Uh, the overwhelming majority of the arrests are QAnon people and militia groups. And, you know, I don't consider them conservatives, but, you know, they, they are under the conservative banner. They put themselves under the conservative banner. Um, I consider them more anarchists, but, uh, regardless, um, you know, that, that whole mechanism, uh, is fueled largely by social media. Um, and, you know, I think we need to be honest with ourselves that we don't know, as a society, we don't know as a Congress, uh, what the right answer is. Um, I have some specific thoughts, which I'm not wedded to, but, but basically I think, uh, once you get to a certain size and you have a certain breach, uh, that there are rules that you're going to need to follow as a platform, um, that have to do with, you know, one, respecting people's legitimate free speech. Um, so not hate speech, not calling for violence, nothing like that, but, but actually respecting. People's views, because uh, you're seeing a lot of conservatives getting kicked off these platforms. Um, but, but also, uh, I think they have a responsibility uh, to make sure that the the, the uh, platforms aren't abused for for these sorts of things, which is a tough tightrope to walk, uh, admittedly. But it's it, it, uh, at at some point we're going to have to tackle it.
0: How much should that just be up to them? If you don't like who Twitter is kicking off or keeping on or the culture that they've created, you don't have to go on Twitter. You have other options. You have Facebook, you have Yelp reviews. I mean, <laughs> but you
1: don't right? like at some point you don't. So, I mean, this is, this, I think this is a, a broader topic. So when I talk to my friends who work in Silicon Valley, who work in technology, I used to work out there in technology. Um, they will tell you, and this one of my best friends works at Instagram and he would say, you have no idea how bad it is for you, like you guys have no chance I mean it's like our our entire company uh is is out to catch you essentially um and these are private conversations, and I keep saying you know it'd be nice if somebody would from inside would write an op ed telling me this, but uh, you know but he would he would lose his job um and so you know you you have this system, and it's not just facebook it's not just uh twitter uh, it's not just instagram it's not just google um it It's all all across the board, uh, but it's and, all yeah. of
0: them individually. I mean, if we found out that like Target and Walmart and Kmart um you know, all didn't sell something we liked, I'm not would we like it's confusing to me that because they all share something, but they're not coordinating it, that that's what makes it ripe for regulation.
1: I don't know for sure they're not coordinating it um, okay I, I think that's something that that should should be looked at. I, okay. I really do. Um, but, but to me, it get part of a big part of this conversation is their size. So to me, like once you hit a certain size and you have a certain reach, um, and you control this much information, uh, you should now be subject to different rules. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, Facebook, I don't know how many Americans are on it. 250 million, roughly. Um, Twitter similarly. I mean, this is Google controls all the information, the majority of the information that we see. And so, in a world where these platforms control what you see, what you have access to, and how you communicate politically, socially, et cetera, uh, to such a large degree, I think that it's time to take a look and say, okay, we need, we need to revisit how we regulate them because they are so central. I mean, look at this. Look at what we're seeing. I mean, this, this insurrection was spawned online essentially uh, by a bunch of garbage. Uh, and, and so, in that world, I think we need to open up the hood and say, "Okay, how are we going to regulate these things uh, to make sure that we respect people's rights, their free speech rights, um, but we also, you know, don't have a repeat of this sort of thing?" Uh, and and that's that, uh, admittedly that is a tough nut to crack. I do not have the answer as I sit here today. Uh, saying repeal Section Two Thirty fixes everything is not true. Uh, it it would help in some respects. It would do nothing in others. Um, and and it uh, it requires a lot of thoughtfulness. Um, And I'll give you one final point on it. When I think of legislation, I put it sort of in a little two-by-two matrix of politically easy and difficult versus intellectually easy and difficult. This one is both intellectually difficult and politically difficult, which means it's going to take a long, long time to figure it out.
0: Do you think that the latest uh, Reddit GameStop stock issue will help or hurt efforts for Congress to reach in to some of these tech companies?
1: You know, that one's an interesting one because it's activated both the right and left. Um, And, uh, you know, you're seeing AOC and Ted Cruz basically have the same opinion, which is, hey, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Looks like a bunch of people, uh, retail investors, who, um, you know, were coordinating to, to buy a stock and, you know, to basically squeeze the short out um and all of a sudden they got shut down by their own platform uh, and and the reddit site went down for a period of time and so um now people are going hey why are you shutting these guys down these are just mom and pop investors it looks like you're shutting them down you know to protect the giant hedge fund on the back end uh in this case citadel now there there might be very legitimate reasons why Robinhood chose to to restrict trading on that like th- this is actually a complicated issue financially um but the appearances look like big tech and high finance sort of teamed up to hit hurt the little guy. Um, and so maybe that, maybe that does create a window. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened because, again, there, there are legitimate reasons why a Hood might say, hey, we need to throttle the trading on this, um, financial reasons, stability reasons for their firm. Uh, but, but the appearances are that big tech kind of screwed the little guy here. And And that's what conservatives have been complaining about online for the
2: better part of the last four years, yeah, I mean, I think isn't it so I'm torn about this i I, I don't think this is this is an easy issue. I have found myself
1: yeah it's very difficult. Uh,
2: I, I come with a certain set of set of assumptions and then I read a piece from from our David French making an argument that challenges all my assumptions and I change my mind and then I read three or four other things. I change my mind again and and i guess to me that would suggest a a moment of real caution when you're talking about having the government step in because these things and and not just because this is you know my conscience but um it it is all so unclear it's not it's not easy to to understand and i guess my concern if you have the government step in i think looking under the hood is appropriate i think asking the questions i think holding hearings i think trying to to, to gain a better understanding and share that better understanding with the american public is is um not only appropriate but necessary Uh, it's it's the next step it's the it's the regulating step that i that i it's just hard for me to see how it works in a practical basis and the, the you know the companies that are big and dominant today may not be big and dominant in Ten years or fifteen years. I mean, fifteen years ago, we thought that Yahoo was going to rule the world forever, and you know, Yahoo's not a bit player anymore. But they're not. It's it, it, it's not the same. What when you when you look at what Twitter and Facebook did with President Trump? Um, I didn't like it. I I thought that they sh- they shouldn't have deplatformed him. Uh, yeah, I you know, I think he, I think he was tweeting nonsense all the time. He's tweeting, he's been tweeting lies for, for longer than five years. He's been tweeting lies for a long time. And I think poisoning the information environment. I mean, I think the way that you describe it as, as um, an epistemological crisis is exactly right. The the fundamental problem, and, and I'm sure you hear this from your constituents all the time. We heard it as we were trying to put together the dispatches. People just don't know what's true. And when you have somebody like Donald Trump step into that Void, particularly given I think the well justified skepticism that folks on the center right have of the mainstream media, they look at Donald Trump and they say, okay, well that must be true. Uh, sh- shutting that down, I think, has led to a healthier information environment. But but the the ramifications, the long term implications of that are are worrisome. I mean, you're 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 not letting better speech defeat or marginalized bad speech you're just trying to shut it down
1: yeah i mean look i i don't want to use an extreme example but right like i'm sure that the chinese communist party would, would say this is why we have a firewall this is why right, we shut the right, speech right. down right. like we do it because it makes our society more stable uh that's not American. that's not america uh, and i don't want to live in that environment um and so you know that i i agree with you i I can't stand his Twitter. account. I couldn't stand the Twitter account for four years. Uh, I mean, the number of times we were about to vote on something and then here comes a tweet. You're like, what on earth? Um, <laughs> was was, uh, was more than I can count on two two hands. Um, not to mention, you know, just the the vitriol and, and all that it spawned. Um, so I I didn't care for it at all. Uh, but you know, he's still the president of the United States. Uh, there was they still hypocritically left you know, come on, uh, they left yes. dictators around the world. Right. I mean, it's, there's no legitimate, uh, basis and standard for, for what they were doing or no consistent standard, certainly. And so I, I think that's a, a huge problem. Um, but the one thing you said, which I think is again, the most interesting and difficult problem to solve is people don't know what happened. And when I, like I asked my mom, I said, Mom, well, what do you think happened in this election? And, and I've asked a lot of people this question. And they pause. They don't say anything for about 10 seconds. And they say, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea what happened. Yep. And that's dangerous. That's how, especially with something so fundamental to democracy, voting and an election, and people literally do not know what happened. And we can say, well, that's because Trump lied to him. And that's because of this, that, and the other. And that okay, fine. But that's a big problem. (laughs) Okay. And so that's that's where people like me have to, you know, set the record straight and say, no, here's what happened in the election. Here's why it felt the way that it felt. Yeah. Here's how all these court cases played out. Right. But that takes time, that's boring, and that doesn't fly across Twitter like you know, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood saying that Hugo Chavez hacked the election from the grave. Some and it's, it's thing
2: yeah, it's, it's so hard. I mean, I think I'm, i hope they won't mind my sharing this, but you know, uh, I watched the president's last state of the union with my, um, in-laws who are on the other side of, of Northern Ohio from your district. And they are very sharp, smart, folks they're they're engaged they read the newspapers they follow the news they want to know what's going on and we talked as we watched the, the state of the union together and you just think you know if if you don't s- swim in this environment if it's not your job to pay attention to what's happened like not just what's happening but what's being said and is it true and what are the nuances of this claim and that claim it's It's there. It's virtually feels virtually impossible to be able to make sense of some of this stuff. And I think you 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 layer look. Politicians. This is not Donald Trump is not the first politician who's misled voters. I mean this this happens all the time. Um, I think Barack Obama. Yeah, I mean, I I think Barack Obama did it far more often than than um, he was held responsible for. Would say things that are that are that were demonstrably untrue, and you know the in the kind of way that would stop the news cycle for two days when Donald Trump did it. And Barack Obama didn't get, I'm not, I'm not just to be clear, I'm not drawing an equivalence. Donald Trump lied a lot more. I think Barack Obama did, but it's happened before. and, And, and when you, when you have it with the frequency that we saw during the Trump era, I do think it just became so hard for people to, to, to say, what is going on? I don't even know who to trust. And, that, I think that, be, that became a, a, a huge, I mean, as you say, an epistemological crisis. Like, how do you know?
1: Yeah, and you don't. And, and again, it's, to me, it's this perpetual escalation cycle. Fake news, Trump attacks the media. Then the media makes disingenuous attacks, sub legitimate attacks, but a lot of disingenuous attacks, okay? And then your average person is going, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't, I don't believe either of these people or either of these entities. And that then plays out over more and more people, and so now you get in a world where nobody knows what to believe, and again they go they they just default to, you know, somebody who shares their values. Yeah, and if shares your values means the guy on Facebook I've never met who might not even be a real person who's <laughs> sending a bunch of garbage out there, then we got a problem. <laughs> and so I I uh, I don't know how to solve it, but again, you know, when it's when it's something like. I'm not going to say a small lie right all lies are bad but like something like the crowd size at the inauguration right it's like okay all right you know, whatever it's a, if well, like if this is sort of juvenile but okay whatever you, you sure you had a great crowd all right fine okay not central to democracy an election central to democracy <laughs> <laughs> The when you start going into that world now we've got a real problem and that you know again i'll Quickly, we had a, a well. I won't go into that. It's a private conversation. But um, but I what I will say is, when you have a crisis of knowledge, when you have an epistemological crisis about something central to democracy, like an election, you've got major problems on your hands, and that's that shouldn't be a right left issue, because the people who stormed the Capitol, who were wrong in every sense of the word, they did it because they legitimately believed that an election was stolen and that the only way to fix it was to storm the Capitol. That's mm-hmm. what they believed. Mm-hmm. And they were shut down and they failed. Thank God. Okay. But they didn't just go away. They're still out there. And and so what do we do now? I think yeah, is, the, exactly. is, is the question.
0: So you have, uh, I think whatever percentage of Americans, some overwhelming percentage of Americans agree with what both of you guys are saying but the issue is like, what of it? And I think that, um, when we talk about the incentives right now, for instance, in Congress, and I'll use some of your colleagues who are, you know, coming in as freshmen, but my God, we're seeing it not just from freshmen. Um, one in particular decided he didn't need to hire constituent services staff or legislative staff. Cause that's not what Congress does anymore. So he just hired all comm staff. And so they're going to, you know. Up his name ID, upping name ID means it's easier to fundraise. Easier to fundraise means you can run uh either, you know, unopposed because you'll scare off opponents, or you can run for higher office even better. And then you can do nothing in that higher office. Whoopee. Um, we can make fun of those people. We can say that you know the media shouldn't give them attention, et cetera, et cetera. Frankly, it's just not gonna happen, as best I can tell. Yep. But what would absolutely change things is if Congress actually did legislation, which it hasn't truly done in, I don't know, a couple decades, really. It's abdicated its role, maybe more than that, ceding all this power to the executive branch and to the agencies uh, and the administrative state, meaning that when people do have an election, they do think it's life and death because whoever wins that four-year term now controls all of the levers of power, not just one. Okay, I'm getting to my point here, which is you have this uh, COVID relief package. That's something that Congress, that's sort of core congressional duty, right? We have a pandemic going on, a national crisis. Surely Congress can do something about that, right? And yet, uh, from everything that I see, it looks very likely that this won't be a bipartisan bill, that they'll use a process called reconciliation, which means that they will not need any Republican votes to pass this. The reason, I think it's a, a fewfold. You can blame Democrats if you want. I think there's there's plenty of blame to go around here, but you can also blame Republicans for a total intransigence or willingness to make realistic compromises because they also just want to stop the Democrats from getting any wins. And that microcosm has played out over and over and over again on every major problem facing this country. Um, you've only been in Congress for, you know, Two years and a couple weeks here, so I'm not laying this all at your feet, but um, there's a, <laughs> it's
2: all your fault. But, <laughs> but everything's two, my fault. No,
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs>
0: but two years and two weeks of it are. Uh, but
1: <laughs> yeah, but
0: yeah. but that to me is a fundamental solution that I don't hear a lot of elected people talking about or wanting to talk about, and it's a lot more fun or easy. You know, you talked about that intellect, that matrix of intellectually hard. It is. Intellectually hard to solve uh, how to get Congress back to legislating again, and it's intellectually easy, I think, to point to the problems that have resulted from that. So, yeah. with your next two years, <laughs> uh, do you have any thoughts on how to fix that?
1: So, here I'll say two things.
0: One specific Congress.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I only got two years, so uh, <laughs> um, a, a couple things I'll say on that. So. Well, with respect to the COVID relief bill, uh, there there are sincere disagreements. I mean, I, I will tell you, I'm in the problem solvers caucus, 25 Republicans, 25 Democrats. We, I would argue, greased the skids on the last COVID relief deal. Um, I will tell you, we're very, very far apart on what we think is reasonable, uh, given where we are in, in the pandemic. Uh, and, and so you're right. The Democrats have said, well, you know, screw them. We're just going to go do it ourselves. Uh, a very... Disappointing thing to do after you just told the country you're here to unify. Um, separate point because uh, that won't unify anybody. Um, but I think that's uh, exactly
0: that, right. Truly, like I, I do want to underline that that like that will lead to more of this problem, not less of it.
1: That's what I'm saying. We are in a perpetual escalation cycle. Um, and I so so how do you get out of that? Right. That's the, the crux of your question. I'm going to give you a very simple answer that is very very difficult to actually do. Okay. We need genuine leadership. We need legitimate leadership. Like leadership actually has to step up and lead. That's how the world works. Like the, the country didn't get to where it was because we were timid and weak. The country is where it is today. 200 plus years of the most successful democracy in human history. Granted, we've had some rough patches the last couple months. Uh, because at critical moments in our history, leaders led. They stepped up. I'm very blessed to have been around some of the, it's football, I get it, uh, but some of the best football leaders that the, the country's ever seen. Tony Dungy's a Hall of Fame coach, my college coach's a Hall of Fame coach, my high school coach's a Hall of Fame coach, played with Pate Manning, who's one of the best leaders I've ever seen. Uh, I've been around, just by happenstance, uh, some phenomenal leaders. Uh, and I will tell you, this town isn't within shouting distance of what is required from a leadership standpoint it just doesn't exist here and and it's and that's not a party comment that is you're a a u.s congressman
0: do something about it
1: i'm trying (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm doing i'm doing what i think is right i'm trying to do my part on that uh and i and again i i'm i'm as frustrated as everybody out there on this um can i
2: can can i ask uh, this question what are those, what are the people who are ostensible leaders, putative leaders, or, or, or leaders by title, what are they doing instead? They're not, I agree with you, I agree with you entirely, agree with your assessment entirely. They're, they're not leading, we have had this vacuum of, of leadership, and I, I agree with you that it's been bipartisan. Is it just that they are feeding this perpetual outrage machine so that they can raise money and they can keep their jobs? They can accumulate more. I mean, it's not even really about accumulating power at this point. In many cases, it's just accumulating, I don't know, years in a chair?
1: Uh, well, yeah. So it's uh, the incentive structure is completely broken. Uh, we've established that, right? Um, I think we've we've correctly assessed what the effect of social media and, and and a breakdown of media and a collapse of information what it creates um and and people are responding to the incentives that are in place uh, and and again i'll go back to what i said early on which is um i love this job more than any job i've ever had it's the honor of my life uh but you we all take an oath and sometimes that means something to people and sometimes it doesn't uh, and you know that the, the The hope is, especially for our side, right, is the side that is sworn to protect the Constitution and and adheres to it, um, that we take that seriously, and that the Constitution is not just something that we put in our back pocket when we have a tough vote that we don't want to make, and then we take out and swing at people uh, when it suits our needs. That can't be how this works, Uh, but way too often that's how it feels. Um, And so, to your point, yes, I am. I am a member of Congress, and I think about the question every day, what am, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? What am I doing? And the answer is clearly no. The answer is clearly no. Um, but the fight is always worth it. This country's worth it. And, you know, as long as I'm blessed to have this, uh, this job, I'm going to do what I think is best for my community and the country. And, you know, we'll, we'll see where it all goes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. I want to talk a little football before we go. But before we get to the fun sure, questions, which I, <laughs> I absolutely want your Super Bowl predictions as the actual expert on this podcast. Uh, Steve and I talk football, but like now this is gonna be embarrassing to have someone who who really knows this stuff. But before we get to that, I do have actually a serious question about your football career because we have young people who listen to this podcast and um and certainly in my career, there have been times where uh Things weren't going well, and I didn't know what how that was all going to play out, where things were going to end up. And when I look at your football career, um, things were just going up and up and up and awesome and up, and you got injured. Uh, you, you came back. You got injured again. Basically, things started going down and down and down. Um, and I have to think this was like your dream at the time, surely, to play NFL ball. And that dream was slipping away, and you didn't quit. You did not give up. You kept sort of fighting through it until it was just untenable. And um, I'm wondering if you would tell us a little bit about um, what that felt like, how you pushed through that moment. And then not even that many years later, you are a U.S. congressman. Did you, in some of those darker moments as you're in physical pain trying to rehab and stuff, Did you think like, look, if this doesn't work out, it's going to be okay because I'm going to I'm going to run for Congress?
2: Or did you think, is it, if this doesn't work out, things can be a lot worse? I'm going to run for Congress. (laughs) (laughs) So one of my my good friends uh, jokes with me. He says, "You have a way
1: of picking horrible industries." (laughs) 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 So so, uh, so anyway, um, you know, good question. I'll nobody's really asked me this publicly, but uh, I'll just tell you. Um so a couple things. One, my career was basically I had 2 years where I was healthy in the NFL uh, and then 3 consecutive years where I was injured. And I was a first round pick and if you're a first round pick there's a lot of internal and external pressure on you to perform at a particular level. Uh and so when I look back on on my career, um I'm incredibly disappointed for how it turned out because I feel like I let the team down and I let the city down, uh, the city of Indianapolis. Um, so how'd you get through that? I'll say this, not well for a period of time. Um, I mean, you know, when I was injured, the first year I got injured, we just let Marvin Harrison go, Hall of Fame wide receiver. We just let Marvin Harrison go. Tony Dungy came to me and said, or as Jim Caldwell came to me and said, now it's your turn. Uh, you, need to t- you need to take that spot. Well, if you are going to be Peyton Manning's literal right-hand receiver, <laughs> okay you're probably going to have a pretty good time uh, and catch a lot of balls and make a lot of money. Um, I got injured, I think on the fourth play of the season, um, and never made it back. The team went to the Super Um, the following year I fought back and got injured in the first game again. Uh, and the guy who took my spot, Pierre Garcon, who's a great guy and, and a great player went on and had a nice career. Um, and during those three years, I mean, honestly, I, I battled depression. I had all kinds of issues that I was trying to fight through. I handled it okay, but not great. Um, And when my career ended, there was this period of time where I just didn't know who I was anymore. I mean, you just feel like you don't have friends, you don't know what you're gonna do. You feel like, because your whole ego is tied up in this game Um, and and your self-confidence and self-worth uh, and I had already gotten into business school. I knew I was going to go to Stanford, but I didn't know anybody out there. And I'd never met anybody who went to that school. Um, and so I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but, you know, eventually, you sort of what I think I figured out is you just keep moving and you keep plodding along and you realize the world didn't end and your friends still do actually like you, um, most of them anyway. And then, uh, and you try something else. And, you know, the same thing in politics. Um where you know I moved on from a business career, I got into this, and and I'll say this: if I didn't have my NFL career, uh, I don't think I could handle the stresses of this job mm. uh, because the scrutiny in the NFL is similar to the scrutiny here, especially when you're not playing well, um, and also the fact that I've already lost a career that I loved, that I spent my whole life trying to to get, uh, and it turned out okay, uh, and so you know, right or wrong, um, that puts me in a position where I sort of trust myself to figure it out. If, if, if I can't recover from this politically, which time time will tell, um, I will be at peace with that knowing that I did this the right way or the way that I believe is right. Everybody can have a different opinion of that. Um, but the way that in, in my heart, I believe is correct that I can tell my kids about someday and be proud of. Um, and if it doesn't work, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. I haven't spent one second thinking about it, uh, but uh, but the NFL career gives me confidence to say, I hope I'll be able to figure something out.
0: Well, uh, I think a lot of folks go through some version of that. They don't go through it publicly like you did. And of all the things that you've accomplished, including um, right now being a, a great congressman for Ohio, uh, I just wanna tell you that I find that part of your story to be the most inspiring because that's something that I think everyone uh, needs to hear more about because we've all been there where you're pursuing a dream and um, and you've worked so hard, so hard for it. And to have it not work out and to know that there is more coming, there's stuff after it and not just uh, consolation, there's actually great stuff and your Absolutely, family yeah. that, um, that you love and cherish now. And, and this job, which kind of sucks, but like, there'll be something after this too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I want to keep this thing, by the way. I, 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 I said, I say that like, you know, if I have to move on, I'll move on. I don't want to move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, I appreciate you saying that. Um,
0: now Steve's fun. Packers, uh, and my husband's Packers, I'm Packers by marriage. Uh, lost in a tragic, tragic uh, game there. So, Steve, I'm going to hand over uh, the Super Bowl predictions to you just because I'm going to find it entertaining to watch you have to talk about a Super Bowl where the Packers got so close to being in it.
2: (laughs) Well, this isn't the first time I've had to have these discussions. (laughs) The Packers have lost in the NFC Championship several times. In recent years, although I did one of the best moments of my life was going with my dad to the Super Bowl. The Packers did win against the Steelers um, and being in the end zone. Aaron Rodgers threw this pass to Greg Jennings. It was like through this, the tiniest of windows and it's a replay that's been shown a hundred times uh, that I've seen. And I was right where the ball was coming. So it was like the perfect vantage point on the perfect play, the perfect game. And i I somehow talked my way into the Packers post game party, where they were nice. they had Kid Rock playing that <laughs> he was the surprise guest, and I was looking around talking to all these these Packers f- fans. I have a friend who who helped me help me out and helped me get in it was uh that was you know one of the best best things I've done in in ages um It's hard to talk about that game <laughs> last week i don't didn't didn't understand the decision not to to uh, to try on fourth down from the 8 yard line yeah. with the NFL MVP. Um and I love Matt I say that as a uh, I'm I'm a, a fan of Matt LaFleur. His his offensive play calling is uh masterful. The number of times we had uh touchdowns that where where it looked like the defense didn't even know it was going on, you know, double digits, couple dozen of those. Um okay, enough enough from me about football. Um who who you got? Who you like in the in the Super Bowl? So I'm definitely rooting for the Bucks. Um,
1: my receiver coach in Indy is uh Tom Brady's quarterback coach, um, and it's um, one of the greatest human beings I've ever met in my life. His name's Clyde Christensen. Uh, the LA Times just wrote a great story on him. I I'd, uh, I just tweeted it. Um, uh, if you want to read it, it's a great story, and he's an amazing guy. So I am rooting for the Bucks. Um, I don't know if they could pull it off. (laughs) The uh, Pat 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 Mahomes is pretty darn good. Um, Travis Kelsey's a monster, uh, and their defense is solid. I mean, it's uh, unfortunately if I had to, if you force me to make a pick, I I think the Chiefs win by about uh, two possessions, probably ten. Wow, my guess a
2: a Super Bowl blowout. It's funny. I mean, the Chiefs don't really they they don't need they don't have much of a running game. And they haven't needed much of a, of a running game.
1: I know it cuts against what I you know, know about football or what I think I know about football, which is like, and this is a trestle thing, a gym trestle thing. You win by basically winning three areas, the turnover margin, you win in the trenches and special teams. Like if you get those three things down, right, you're probably going to win. Um, and the chiefs just don't run it. They just, they yeah. just throw it all over the joint. <laughs> and and nor- normally that means you turn the ball over, but it, it doesn't happen with them because, <laughs> yeah. uh, Pat Mahomes is a magician, and um, I'll, I'll say this one point. So I, I was talking to my former quarterback, uh, Peyton Manning, about him at one point, and I just said, man, Pat Mahomes, like it, he plays the game differently than anybody I've ever seen with these no-look passes and side arms, and, and all that. And, and Peyton, who knows a lot more about uh, football than I certainly do, he said, "Guns, I don't know how you make those throws. I, I just don't wow. know how you make them. I mean, wow. just almost physically in awe of some of the things Mahomes um, is doing um so that that tells you something
2: comes from a voice of authority for sure
1: yeah though so, you know it is he is playing Tom Brady and uh again I, I will be rooting passionately for the Bucs because of Clyde Christensen uh and Tom Moore who's uh my offensive coordinator he's there as well so um I'm hoping for for a Bucks win but uh unfortunately I'm, I'm not seeing it right now
0: The bigger the competition, something special happens in Tom Brady's person. There is some chemical that the rest of us maybe don't even have that just turns on when the lights are really, really on, which has been sort of this treadmill, no doubt for Brady, where like what those lights have to be has changed, but there's no brighter lights than the Super Bowl. So I don't know.
1: Yeah. You know, it's so funny you say that. So I, I always, as I said, this, I love this job more than anything I've ever done. And it's the greatest honor outside of marrying my wife. Um. The only other job that has similar thrills is football, because it's pretty fun to wake up every day thinking about winning Super Bowls.
2: Mm-hmm. Like if,
1: if all you think about every day when you wake up is, what am I doing to win the Super Bowl? That's pretty cool. The only thing I found better is, what am I doing to make this country better? What am I doing to kick China's butt? What am I doing to make my community better? That's the only thing I found uh, from a professional standpoint um, that, uh, that charges you up the same way, because um, this is a special country.
0: So. All right, last question. What is your go-to Super Bowl snack for this Super Bowl? What will you be eating?
1: Oh my goodness. Uh good question. Uh I'll be drinking something brown and <laughs> I will be uh I'll probably do a nice I'm going to do a nice New York strip on the grill. It's not going to be a snack. It's it's uh <laughs> it's going to be a good solid piece of red meat with uh some potatoes and you know, whatever else we got in the, in the fridge. But yeah, that's, that's my plan. What time do
0: you want me over?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
0: Steve, what are you going with?
2: Um, Well, I was going to just say nachos or wings, but that seems like inadequate after, after that. No, I will be one, 100% chance. I will be doing eating a lot of wings. I mean, I do that almost every time I watch football, which is, why I look the way I look um, a lot
0: of chickens die that first weekend in February
2: <laughs> yeah well you know what it might end up getting me the the vaccine in Maryland a little early because I've pushed past the BMI threshold for obese so you know everybody who scolded me for eating too many wings in the past I can point to, to that jokes and say, on them might actually get me the vaccine earlier.
0: Well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us, for giving us so much of your time. We appreciate that and we appreciate your service. Now, go make our country better every day.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is an honor.